You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who haven't met yet, my name is Caleb, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and also have the privilege this morning of opening up God's Word with y'all. We're going to be in Matthew 25, and while you open up, I just want to add my thanks for your faithful giving and generous giving. Thank you so much. Today, we're continuing in our mini-series, Define the Church Relationship, and this is a brief look at meaningful church membership. We, the church, are to be a family, and a family brings with it certain benefits, but also certain and specific responsibilities and commitments. Being a family member, being a church member, requires something of us. Meaningful church membership at the basic level means we prioritize the weekly family gatherings, the Sunday morning gathering right here. And it also means that we commit to relationships outside of here. We meet here and we meet in groups to invest in relationships intentionally to pursue the biblical one another's together. We talked about gathering and groups the last two Sundays. And next week we're going to talk about our commitment to going. We aren't here as a family only for our own good. We're here for the good of the world. And so we go in our weeks, we scatter to the various places God's placed us in to be a faithful witness. Today we're going to focus on giving. Meaningful membership involves giving. Giving our time, our resources, and our abilities. So in all, meaningful church membership embraces gathering, groups, giving, and going. And as we turn to look at giving, let's begin by asking ourselves, who do my resources belong to? For, for instance, do your resources belong to you? Or do they belong to the government? These are the two most prominent options given to us by our culture. Secular individualism says that our resources belong to me. I'm free. I worked hard. I earned them. And therefore, they're all mine. Socialism says that your resources belong to the state. It's the state that's created the opportunities for you to earn the resources and it's been entrusted to protect the resources and all you have is really all for the state. Your resources belong to the government. So, do your resources belong to you, the individual, or do they belong to our government? How we answer this question determines the ways we live and the ways we give or don't give. If our resources are the states, then we give involuntarily. If our resources are ours, then we give voluntary, voluntarily. 
It's, 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 it's optional. Is giving to be forced out of us? Is giving to be completely optional? Our secular culture leaves us with these two horizontal options alone. And of course, both ways are plagued with corruptions and abuses of various kinds. But the good news is that there's a third way, a vertical option that's more beautiful. That throughout the pages of Scripture, the Lord shows us a better way. The, the reality that the Bible uncovers is that all of our assets are not the state's. And all of our assets are not our own. The Bible proclaims we belong to God. Everything we have is God's. And he appoints us as his asset managers to invest in an altogether different economy. The economy of the kingdom of God. And so my my assets belong to me and yet they don't belong to me. I've been entrusted with them to manage, to manage them for him as his asset manager. This morning, we're going to read what's called the parable of the talents, where Jesus will teach us that a life that belongs to him proclaims, all I have is all for you. All I have is all for you. So we're going to read The parable of talents, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. This is God's word to us, Grace Church. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who who has will more be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pray with me. Lord, we belong to you. Our only hope is that we belong to you, both body and soul, both in life and death. And so we ask you, Lord, help us embrace this truth, this, 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 challenge, this challenging truth that all we have is all for you. Help us embrace it. Do something supernatural, Holy Spirit, in our hearts. Help us to live this truth out, Spirit of God. Shape us and stir us with your word, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. A life that belongs to Jesus proclaims, all I have is all for you. To wrap our hearts around this parable, we're going to look at what God's people receive, their response, and their rewards. So first, what we receive. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. Jesus told his disciples that he's departing and is now emphasizing his certain return and the importance of his disciples staying alert and ready. And so he tells them three parables in a row to show them what this readiness looks like. In the first section of chapter 25, he says that readiness looks like this, the parable of the ten virgins. Readiness looks like waiting for me to come back. And now in this parable, Jesus says readiness, kingdom readiness is manifested by working, working for the master. And make no doubt about it, the master in this parable is Jesus himself. And his servants are his professing disciples. The master is going on a long journey, just like Jesus is going on. But before he departs, he entrusts a certain number of talents to three servants to invest in for him while he's away. In those days, some servants received an immense amount of responsibility. And that's the case here. They're essentially given like power of attorney to be his asset managers in his absence. And to the first, he gives five talents. And to the second, two talents. And to the third, one talent. Now, if you're like me, you're focused on the different amount of talents he's given. It seems sort of unfair. But the first thing to really notice about this is that the servants receive a talent at all. A master wasn't obligated to give his servants anything. Each servant here receives a gift by God's grace, by the master's grace. And before we feel sorry for the third servant, it's helpful to understand the value of a talent. Okay, to have one talent in that day was to be well off. To have five would mean you're extremely wealthy. And so some scholars estimate that uh, a talent in modern terms is worth about $600,000. And that wasn't, that stat I pulled from 2018, so I don't know what that means for the last four years of inflation. But for, for illustration's sake, let's just say it's worth $600,000. So what that would mean is that the first servant receives about $3 million, the second servant receives $1.2 million, and the third servant receives $600,000. So don't, don't miss this. Jesus' use of the talent as a metaphor for the gifts he gives makes it clear that each gift he gives 
is highly valuable. Like he could have used the word denarii, like the day's wages, but he uses the word talent. The gifts God's people receive from him are highly valuable. And so imagine the the master wasn't doing a bank transfer. He wasn't writing him a check. Uh, The NIV translation calls this the parable of the bags of gold. And so that's a good picture. Imagine that the master is handing each of his servant bags of gold. Each servant received a very valuable asset. None of their responsibility was unimportant or petty. Each is holding bags of gold. And then he went away. So his master must have really trusted his servants with with, with this tremendous responsibility. And more, it seems he knows them intimately. Let's pay attention to the details. In verse 15, it says, He gave to each according to his ability. Now, the original word for ability can also mean power or capability. So the master gives his servants valuable gifts according to their capability to invest them for him. This is the reason he gives them gifts, to invest them for him. That's why in verse 19, the master comes back and he settles accounts with his servants. He gives them valuable gifts so that they can use all they have, all for him. And he gives each one according to their actual capability to do so. Now, one more thing that's really important for us to understand about these bags of gold, these talents. Here in this parable, they're most likely being used to represent more than just money. Money is certainly in mind, but our English word talent actually derives from this parable appropriately. Because what Jesus is referring to is more like our gifting. So when we say, hey, that person's very talented, we're not saying that person's very rich. We're saying that that person's very gifted. And what's probably also in view here is a person's opportunities and privileges for the kingdom. So, so far we see that all we have is from our master and for our master. All of our gifts and abilities and opportunities and privileges are all from him and for him. All I have is all for him. The gifts vary in character and magnitude, but they're all valuable gifts we receive. They're grace. It's not our responsibility to choose our gifts. That's the master's role. Our responsibility is to respond to what he gives faithfully. And that's what we see next, the response, the servant's responses. And the responses teach us how we're to respond to the gifts we receive from Jesus. The master hands each servant bags of gold and then he departs. How will they respond? Verse 16 says, He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Okay, these servants didn't waste any time. They went off at once. The gun went off and they started racing. They got to work. Their master's intention was crystal clear. All they have is all for him. And this includes even their time. That's why you see, you know, they, they didn't waste any of it. They, since they belong to him, their time belonged to him. And that's, that's why they don't waste any of it. They went at once and they traded. And traded here means doing business over 
time. The, the two servants didn't go and, and make a lucky bet or make this really killer investment and, and then just sit back for the rest of the time. They traded and they retraded for as long as their master was away. And the text says that he was away for a long time. The point isn't the type of work, but the fact that they took full advantage of every resource their master had given them. Both men demonstrate deep loyalty to their master by maximizing their opportunities to invest. The motivation of their service is clear when the master returns to settle accounts in verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. The servant with two talents says the exact same thing in verse 22. He says, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. This wasn't boasting or self-congratulation. They're saying, all I have is all for you. All I have is, is from you, and all that I've earned is for your benefit and your profit. But the third servant's response is, is radically different, and so are his motivations. The master had put a bag of gold in his hands and trusting to him a very valuable gift to manage. And then he went away. And verse 19 says, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now this sounds super bizarre to us, but, but hiding treasure in the ground was a common practice in the ancient world. They didn't have security deposit boxes. Uh, they didn't have bank vaults. They, th those weren't at least very common. So this was a normal way to protect valuables. But of course, the problem is that he's given all he has for his master's profit. He's given less than the others, but it's for him to invest, not to protect. Bearing these working resources is the exact opposite of his master's intent. So what would motivate him to do this? His dialogue with the master gives us a glimpse. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine, my own, with interest. The third servant doesn't present his master with earnings. His, the third servant comes with an accusation of his master's character. He accuses his master, the one who's bestowed this great grace on him, handing him a bag of gold. He calls him unmerciful and dishonest. He blames him for his own actions. And, and the master's response is sort of interesting. But just know this, he's not acknowledging any truth in the servant's accusation by repeating it back to him. What he's doing is he's calling his bluff. It's a lame Smokescreen. It's not even consistent. Eugene Peterson's interpretation of this is helpful. He says this. He, put, he kind of summarizes it this way. He says, the master was really trying to say something like this. 
If you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. Okay, so basically the servant is hanging himself with his own rope. It's his own accusation and self-serving excuse that condemns him. Really, guys, there's another motivation here. It's his allegiance to the master. His allegiance was counterfeit. He professed belonging to the master, but he really didn't. He really didn't know him. He really didn't trust him. He wasn't really loyal to the master after all. Now, he didn't go and squander the money in reckless living like the prodigal son. But there's more than one way to rebel against the master. Church, there's more than one way to rebel against the master. Pay attention. The wicked servant is not a pagan. The wicked servant is not an atheist. The wicked servant's not endorsing or embracing another worldview. He's not a Buddhist. He says he's a servant. He says right things on the surface. He's a professing orthodox believer sitting in the pews each week. This servant though, doesn't produce anything for his master. He doesn't even try to seek his master's profit. And all this really just reveals his heart, his false loyalty. You see, he can't really say all I have is all for you because it's just not true. His profession is superficial. It's like he's saying, I may be your servant legally, I may be your property legally, But in my heart of hearts, I don't belong to you. And so all I have really isn't all for you. The parable shows us these two different responses. And it also shows that these two responses lead to two very different rewards or outcomes. Response one is I belong to you. All I have is all for you. Response two is I don't really belong to you. All I have therefore isn't. Yours. Listen to the reward response one leads to in verse 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And note the master repeats the exact same words to the second servant in verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Church, look at this. The master's desire for equal, wasn't for equal return from each servant. It was for equal faithfulness. The first servant made more than double the profit as the second servant did, but they were rewarded the exact same. They weren't equally fruitful, but they were equally faithful. Well done isn't mainly a commendation for fruitful accomplishments, but for faithful character. Character that seeks to accomplish as much as possible for the master during his absence. A heart that says, all I have is all for you. Well done, good and faithful servants. The grand finale at the master's return is the master's praise. But he rewards them even more. He says, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
as valuable as $3 million or $1.2 million may be, it's little compared to what he, he will give them. Church, notice the reward isn't profit sharing. It's not a retirement plan. It's more responsibility. The Bible teaches that heaven will be a place of expanding and increasing service. And the ones given the most opportunity for uh, that in eternity will be the ones who have invested most faithfully in the kingdom here and now. And somehow this is all connected to our joy. He says, enter into the joy of, our, our, of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. Their added responsibility and their relationship is somehow tied together in a joyous partnership. God's people will share in his very joy. It sounds Trinitarian, almost like we're being invited into the partnership of the Trinity where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have this eternal serving partnership. It's one of bottomless joy and we get invited into it. There's not a better reward not seeing joy from a distance or tasting it on the tip of our tongues, but entering into joy, entering into the very joy of God. This is the very joy that the third servant misses out on. Instead of this invitation, what was given to him is taken away. And the master says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, this is horrible ending. Darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's misery. The servants receive great gifts from the master, but they respond two different ways. Faithfulness and faithlessness. And these lead to two different outcomes. Entering into the master's joy or the reckoning of being cast out. Separated from the master. Separated from joy itself. This is very important. The third servant is not one who simply wasted his opportunities. He's a false servant. He's a false servant with no faith. His actions just reveal his heart's loyalty. He's not invited into the joy of the master because he doesn't really belong to the master. It's not so much that his master rejects him. He's actually poured immense grace on him, but that this servant rejects his master and will now live out that choice's implications. So what does this all mean for us, Grace Church? Is all we have all for Jesus? That's what we're being called to embrace. If we belong to Jesus, all we have is all for him. And this leads to at least three points of application. And I'm going to focus these applications on the generous giving involved in meaningful membership in the local church. And I don't really think this is me forcing it into the text at all. Because if you keep reading the same conversation Jesus is having, he describes his return and final judgment in a third and final parable. And this parable has uh, two groups of people who've lived two different ways. And to the first group, he gives a very similar reward as the faithful servants in our parable. And to the second group, he gives a very similar judgment as he does to this wicked servant. Listen to this. Keep going in the text. Listen to what he tells the first group in chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, or because, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And when the faithful group is confused because they don't know, they didn't know that they were doing this to Jesus, in verse 40 he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, when Jesus highlights faithful service for his benefit and profit, he concentrates on investments in his brothers, the church. So this isn't a stretch because our committed investment in his brothers, first and foremost, is to be directed in the local church. It's not the only place we give, but it also shouldn't be the place we give the least or the place we give last. Certainly to be a top priority as a a place we give. So I don't think this is a stretch to concentrate all these applications on Giving, meaningful giving in in the local church. If all we have is all for him, we'll give like crazy here to one another. And we'll give in three ways at least. Our talent, our treasure, and our time. So first, each of us needs to embrace that all the gifts and abilities we have are all for him. Like body parts, each church member receives specific gifting and opportunities to use that gifting. Some of us are discouraged about our abilities or opportunities here. You you feel like the third servant may be given the least, even to the point of anguish. But please, don't bench yourself. We're not called to focus on what we receive, but that we receive anything at all. What you have is a valuable gift specifically given to you by a master who knows you and gives you Uh, that gift to invest in his work here among his brothers, the church family. And Craig often says, it's not the part you play, it's that you play a part. That's so true. And there's so much freedom and and joy in that because you don't have the burden of choosing your own gifts. And that's key to church membership, to believe that you've already received a gift or gifts from the one you belong to and to focus on the part you play. Not not on the part you play, but on the fact that you play a part. All you have is all for him. You're his asset manager. Are you managing gifts you receive from him faithfully? Are you giving your gifts for his kingdom, for the good of others? Are you serving somewhere in this church fully and faithfully? If not, find a service team you can regularly serve on. Don't bury your gifting. It's valuable. Invest it in God's work. Invest it here in the brothers of Jesus. Second, all of the resources, including all of the money we have, are all for Jesus. Church, this may sound self-serving coming from one of the pastors, but we didn't write this text we're not your masters, and we, we're not pursuing the roles of pastors to try and gain off you. Now listen, 
we know pastors do this. Many churches have been harmed deeply because of their pastor's selfish seeking of gain. And it's, it's hurtful and it's horrible. But it's also true that the role of a pastor, at least not in our city or in our country, or at least, at least not in our stream of faith, this role of pastor is not the ideal place for us to be pursuing uh, a way to maximize our financial resources and comfort. Some of our pastoral team hasn't taken a dime from the church. But I admit, it's kind of precarious standing up here telling you that all your money is all for Jesus and that you should give generously to the local church because I'm not one of those pastors that hasn't taken a dime. My, My family's livelihood comes from the church. But I want to tell you something. I haven't always been a pastor. I haven't always been receiving an income from uh, a church. And I want to tell you this too. This is a challenging reality for me as well that, that I'm, I'm in, I haven't to work through. It's a challenging reality for me. I haven't been the most generous man in this room or on the pastoral team or even in my own family. I'm growing here. I'm actually a greedy man, but seeking to be generous by the grace of God. I'm not the example up here. I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you I'm, I'm the most generous man. I'm, I'm a greedy man seeking to be more generous by God's grace. I face the same temptations as you do. I'm not really tempted to see all the money I have as all the governments. I'm more tempted to see all my money as mine. And so the automatic response of my flesh to raised income is to raise my standard of living somehow, to update my house or, or car, or to eat out more, to move into a better neighborhood or go on vacations or dates or whatever, to get more stuff. But the reality that all the money I have is all for Jesus put to claim on my life and my money. Randy Alcorn in The Treasure Principle puts it like this. He said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. I'll say that again. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. Okay, God gives us more money than we need so we can give generously. And so the application here is to give your finances generously. Don't only give to the local church, but give it as a top priority because the local church primarily is the place that we get to invest in the brothers of Jesus and thus for Jesus, the master himself. Church mission and ministry takes resources and it costs money. And Grace Church is full of people who give sacrificially. Some of you are resisting the temptation to base your lifestyle on your income. You intentionally live below the lifestyle you can afford in order to invest in the kingdom. Some of you can't possibly do that. You can't go any lower than you are because you're getting by. You're just getting by. But there are people in our church that that may be considered poor by our city standards, but who are generously giving to the work of God. Poor people are often more times more generous than rich people. So if you give it all, thank you so much. And if you give generously, sacrificially, thank you all the more. God's used it here and beyond in ways we might not ever see. And think about that. If you're new here especially, think about that. You're sitting in chairs right now and under a roof. 
that were provided by people's generous giving for years, for years before you got here. Some of those haven't even got to experience this for themselves. So if you give, again, thank you. And in many ways, we're here as a church because of your faithful investment. I just ask you, look around. Look around and, and watch. See God on the move. I hope you're pleased. But know this, the satisfaction you experience today won't compare to the words you'll hear from your King and Savior one day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, if you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. And what I say isn't for you. If you're a member and you don't give yet, or you don't give generously yet, please don't miss out on the joy and satisfaction of eternal investment in God's people. There may be many reasons why you don't give, but if it's because you don't see all your money as all for Jesus, please pause and consider this parable. What does this reveal about your heart, your loyalty and, and worship? What, what about what you th- who you think you belong to? What does this reveal about which servants you're most like in the parable? This isn't work salvation. We're not saved by our giving. We're saved by God's grace, and we give because we're saved already. But our credit card statements and checkbooks are often a mirror of where our hearts are really at. They can show us who we think we really belong to. So look, look in the mirror and consider, who do I belong to? Maybe you're in a place where you don't feel like your finances reflect your heart. You're not giving uh, sacrificially because you're enslaved to debt. It's hard not to get ensnared by this in our consumeristic and materialistic society. We get it. We want to help you. That's why we regularly offer the generous living class. But you don't have to wait for the class. What's one step you can take further into giving generously? Okay, these steps, even small steps, are like antidotes to the disease of materialism that likely enslaved you in the first place. What's your next step? Is it giving something instead of nothing? Giving regularly, weekly, or maybe increasing what you already give? If you haven't done so yet, consider giving to the commons in the back. It's, it's a big way our church is investing in ministry together, and you can still participate. If you don't, the master's work will go on. He'll accomplish it. He will provide, but don't miss out on meaningful investment in God's people, in God's church. It's the reason he's given you what you have, and your increased joy is at stake. Okay, third and final application point. This will be shorter. All the time, all the time we have is all for Jesus. Bob Hughes first taught me this principle. Our life on earth is like a dot. And from it extends a line that goes on forever, which is eternity in heaven. We should live for the line, not the dot. We should live for the line and not the dot. Do you view your time, your days, your weekends, your summer break, your retirement as yours to do with what what you want or as the Lord's? I'm not saying we don't take breaks or vacations. We need rest. We should take time for rest and recreation and renewal. The point is that like our checkbooks, our calendars reveal where our hearts are, who we think we belong to. Our, Our calendars don't save us. But if we're saved, our calendars change. 
This weekly gathering, your group or a service team might not take as long as a work week, but are they a top priority in your calendar? Bob didn't just teach me this principle. He's exemplified it for all of us. All our time is all for Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know, but Bob has been a full-time elder here, nearly a full-time elder here for, for many years, and it's all completely voluntary. He's not living for himself in his later years. He's not using his retirement collecting sea cells on the beach, but investing in the kingdom. For him, this looks like serving as an elder at Grace Church. For you, it will likely look different. The important application is not the exact ways you use your time, but who you use it for. That you embrace all the time you have is all for Jesus. Living for the line and not the dot. So as we end our time together, I want us just to consider what missionary and mortar, martyr Jim Elliott said before he died. The band can come up. We're going to get ready to sing. He said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Okay, this isn't only a reality for foreign missionaries, people living in hard places or those in full-time ministry. It's the reality for all Christians. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We need to remember the gospel, church. We don't belong to Jesus because we give. We give because we belong to him. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't belong to Jesus because we give. We give because we belong to him. Why, why do we belong to him? I belong to him because he loved me and gave himself for me. And the same is true for you. So we give ourselves for him because he gave himself for us. We give what we can't keep, our abilities, our resources, our time, our lives to gain what we can't lose. The master himself, we have him already and we will share in his joy. So let's proclaim, be thou my vision in song and in deed this week. Let's proclaim, be thou my vision. All I have is all for you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.